How does anyone become a Christian? How does someone go from being a fair-weather fan of Jesus to being a committed follower of Jesus? What do you think has to take place in the heart and in the mind of a person to go from living a self-deceived life, ignoring Jesus, even rebelling against Jesus, to prioritizing your whole life to obeying Jesus? I mean, we are in a Christian church this morning. I imagine 95% of us would profess to be a Christian. And others of you, you're either not sure or you're self-consciously identified as spiritual, but not religious. Maybe you would even consider yourself agnostic. You're not really sure what you believe. Or maybe you're here today and you've really thrown away the idea of a sovereign creator God. You start to walk down that dark hallway, that black hole of that atheistic worldview that really amounts to nothing in the end. Well, regardless of where you're at today spiritually, we do know this for certain. You're gathered in a Christian church this morning. You've been listening to and singing Christian songs. You've been hearing Christian prayers, and now you're about to hear a Christian sermon. And friends, you're also sitting in a room today filled with many people who would confidently identify themselves as a Christian. So since you're here, we might as well come face to face and ask that question. What does it really mean then to be a Christian? So what is a Christian? Well, a definition I've used before is a Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ who possesses the indwelling presence of God's Spirit, whose life increasingly shows the fruits of faith, love, and obedience to God. You see, a Christian is someone who believes in a real, personal, invisible God who created the heavens and the earth. Christians believe that this book, the one that you're probably holding in your hands today, the Bible, was written by man, but its divine origin is God. Christians believe that a man named Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and he claimed to be the Savior of the world, being both fully God and fully man. And Christians believe that the Bible teaches if we turn from our sins and put our trust in Jesus Christ alone, we can be forgiven of all our sins against an all-knowing and holy God and have eternal life with him. So friends, that brings us back to the first questions I posed for us. How does anyone, man or woman, boy or girl, go from living with a blindness, wearing kind of a blindfold of unbelief to this God, to being someone who lives for this God with the sight of saving faith? Well, for many of us, if we had to answer that question, we would attribute our conversion story to maybe a faithful witness like a mom or a dad, a grandma or grandpa, or maybe even a church that told us the gospel. Or maybe we just simply picked up the Bible for the first time 
and read it seriously. And the Lord opened our eyes to our sin and our need for a Savior. Maybe for some of us, our life at one time began to fall apart. Everything began to fail us. And we began to call out to God to rescue us. We came to that breaking point of desperation where we saw the light. That light that the Apostle Paul says that every true Christian sees when God saves them. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you became a Christian at 6, 16, or 60, the same supernatural light was shown in your heart. Friends, that's the testimony of how God converts sinners. He rips off the blindfold that Satan has blinded our eyes and helps us see Jesus in all his glory for who he really is. But another question I want to push us to think about is not merely how do we become a Christian, but how do you know that you in fact have become a Christian? I mean, is it simply being able to articulate the gospel? Or say that you believe in a God? And what makes a Christian's life any different to anybody else, regardless if they're religious or not? What makes them unique and distinct in following Jesus and not someone else? You know, perhaps some of you are even here today and you're basically saying, well, Brother Blake, I have a good paying job, my health is intact. I feel like I'm a pretty moral person. Of course, I have flaws. I mean, who doesn't, right? But I don't need to give my life to Jesus. I mean, what difference would it even make? Whether you're a Christian or not, it's good to be reminded what biblical Christianity actually promises. You see, biblical Christianity, or the gospel according to Jesus, really only promises two things. A change of heart that only God can perform and a secure future than only God can provide. Let me say that again. Christianity promises two things, a change of heart that only God can perform, and a secure future that only God can provide. You see, if you come to Jesus, he doesn't promise you all the wealth in the world, perfect health in this life. In following Jesus, he doesn't even promise you that people will support your decision to follow Jesus. Family may disown you. Friends may disown you. You might even lose a job over following Jesus. So friends, if I had to boil it all down to this, never forget this. God changes everyone he saves. God changes everyone he saves. 
So let me ask you a question. How has following Jesus changed your life? How has following Jesus impacted the way you and I view relationships, priorities, and passions in our life? How has following Jesus impacted your involvement to obey the Great Commission? How has following Jesus affected your commitment to be a member of a gospel-preaching local church until Jesus comes back? To those questions, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you can find that on page 573 in the chair Bibles provided. Uh, This morning and next Sunday, I'll be preaching a couple of standalone sermons That means we won't be in a longer series, but nonetheless, we'll be in God's Word together. Follow with me as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have three kind of main points that will kind of guide you. Uh, Just to forewarn you, they're not on the screen, so you'll just have to listen or re-listen later. Point number one, the fruits of Christian conversion. The fruits of Christian conversion. Number two, the source of Christian conversion. The source of Christian conversion. And number three, the testimony of a faithful Christian church. The testimony of a faithful Christian church. Let me give you a little background of where we're at in redemptive history here. Uh, First Thessalonians is written by a man named Paul. Uh, Though you'll notice right there in verse 1 
there are three men's names, so I don't, I don't think you need to read this opening letter like Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are arm wrestling for who is going to be the author of the letter. In fact, Paul identifies himself in the first person pronoun I in chapter 2. Look over with me just for a moment in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says, but since we were torn away from you, speaking of Paul and his teammates, if you will, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Chapter 2, verse 18, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Uh, This is Paul the Apostle. Uh, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. As you may recall from the book of Acts, he once violently opposed Christianity. But eventually, on the road to Damascus, he was powerfully converted into a follower of Jesus. Uh, Simultaneously, at the moment of his conversion, uh, God had called him to a special task. He was called to be an apostle, a preacher, one who would be a messenger sent out with Jesus' authority to preach the gospel, and to plant churches wherever God would lead him. Well, on one of those missionary journeys, the second missionary journey, Paul and his team ended up in Macedonia, which is in modern-day Greece. After doing some ministry work in the Roman colony of Philippi, Paul was run out of town. He was persecuted. He wasn't wanted there anymore. And so that he led... He was led to a town about 100 miles away, uh, and that city would be Thessalonica. Uh, But when Paul shows up there, uh, he finds it's a fairly economically prosperous place. It's a harbor city. It's a commercial trade place. And religiously, uh, people were committed largely to the Greek-Roman gods, uh, specifically even the Roman emperor Caesar himself. But sprinkled within the city, uh, there were Jews that would gather on the weekly Sabbath in the synagogue. And it says in Acts chapter 17 that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they entered into the synagogue. And it says in verse 2 of Acts 17, they were explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Well, Did God use their preaching? Did God use their evangelism? Well, absolutely. In a matter of months, a local church was planted, and many people became followers of Jesus. They were converted. However, we do read in the book of Acts that the gospel wasn't always well received, even in Thessalonica, just like Philippi, and just like any town and any city the gospel penetrates into. Anytime God's power penetrates into a city, town, or country, the power of Satan will roar right back. Because when God is doing a great work, well, the kingdom of darkness will do everything it can to push back. Well, what happened was there was a mob of jealous and wicked men. They threatened his life, and eventually they had to get out of town. And so Paul over a series of months, ends up in Corinth, of all places, and he writes back to the Thessalonians, and he sends Timothy to go encourage them. 
and instruct them how to live a godly life in the midst of a godless culture. And one of the things you'll notice about 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is the second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned a half a dozen or more times. In other words, these believers were experiencing intense persecution. They lost loved ones in death, and Paul wanted to encourage them that we still have a great hope awaiting, which is the return of Jesus Christ. So here we are at the beginning of this letter, which really is just an opening prayer. So that's what you kind of need to see here in this first chapter. And Paul and his team are going to encourage these saints as they recall and reflect on God's work of grace in their life. Look with me, starting in verse 1 again. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul opens up this letter like he does in most of his letters, by offering unceasing thanks to God. Do you thank God on a regular basis at the outset of your prayers? Well, friends, I think Paul models that for us. He opens up this letter thanking God. But specifically, he thanks God for the work of salvation and the work of conversion that God had done in these believers' lives. These people once worshipped idols, dead gods, dead religion. Men, at best, like King Caesar. What could change a person's heart who devoted their entire life, family tradition, all they've ever known of serving these false gods, to now serving the one true God? Well, only God can turn sinners to God. But why does Paul open up this letter by thanking God for them? Why exactly is Paul so excited that it drove Paul to offer up praise and thanksgiving? And did you notice there in verse 3? Constantly mentioning them in his prayers. In other words, he couldn't get their names off their mind. He had traveled on to a new town, to a new church, to new ministry, but he did not forget on the forefront of his mind these once pagan, idolatrous sinners who became Christians through his ministry. Well, friends, Paul thanked God for them because God worked in them what no human being could do for them. God and God alone performed a supernatural heart change that would forever change these sinners' lives. And I want you to notice something of what Paul does not draw our attention to in this letter, like most popular preachers do. Paul does not fix our mind, or his mind for that matter, on the number of decisions that were made to follow Jesus in Thessalonica. 
He doesn't focus on how many hands were raised at the end of the sermon. He doesn't focus on how many cards were signed. He doesn't focus on how many decisions were made simply because they said with their mouth, they're a Christian now. No, Paul doesn't become preoccupied with how many people showed up to hear his sermons. Paul isn't really boasting in how many followers he gained on Twitter and Facebook as a result of his ministry. No, he doesn't even draw attention to his own ability as a preacher. The metric Paul used that fueled his prayers to thank his God were the supernatural changes God had worked in their life. Do you see that? Man-centered Christianity is blasphemous to God. Even the most mightily used man or woman you know of God is nothing but dust and air apart from God. We came from the dust and we're going to return to it. And friends, even though we are in Christ and we are infinitely loved, when you and I have a God-centeredness to our ministry, we focus on what God is doing in and through the lives of the people he is using through our ministry. That's exactly what he does here. Paul draws our attention as he reveals what he was most concerned about, which was really what God was most concerned about. Friends, does your prayer life reflect what God is most concerned about? God gets most glory for himself when we are most satisfied in beholding him. Paul is focused on what God is doing in people's lives, not even how God is using him for that matter. You see, when people become born again, that's something to be excited about. It is something to be excited about when you hear sinners turn from their sin and turn to Christ. It's exciting to hear them read John 3.16 with joy in their hearts. It's exciting to see a new believer sing with gusto and joy. When coming to church before was a bore. It was a yawn. It's exciting to see broken relationships restored because Jesus is the center of those friendships. Friends, that's exactly what Paul is concerned about. When God works in our hearts, he begins to make us follow Jesus and we begin to look like Jesus. You see, when you follow Jesus, you'll begin to trust and obey God like Jesus. And that's exactly what's going on here in chapter 1. Paul is giving God the glory because Christ is being formed in this young church. And he's giving God glory for it. And friends, this wasn't some kind of small, private, kind of happened in a closed room place where nobody took notice. We're going to find out in this letter that entire communities... We're taking notice of this supernatural work. So when God gets a hold of our hearts, when God got a hold of these Thessalonians' hearts, what changes does Paul bring attention to that caused him to thank God for bringing in their lives? Well, I want us to notice they had a new faith, a new love, and a new hope. A new faith, a new love, and a new hope. Look with me in verse 3. This really kind of encapsulates 
all of chapter 1 of the fruits of this change he brought in their life. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, we're not going to drop below point number one. What's sub-point number one? A new faith. Paul first describes their new faith. Uh, Notice what he says. He remembered their work of faith. It's kind of an odd way to put that. We might say a profession of faith. Paul draws their attention to their work of faith. Far from teaching a works-based salvation, Paul is just merely highlighting the fact that their faith wasn't dead, but it was a faith that demonstrated it through works. It was the gift of faith that God gave them in regeneration that made them serve willingly King Jesus. In other words, the Thessalonians did not fall prey to, at least at first, to what many of us have become familiar with, Christian nominalism, Christian in name only, Christian by word but not by deed, Christian in profession but but not Christian in obedience. But here, these Thessalonians, their faith wasn't superficial. It wasn't surface level. Uh, No, in fact, they believed in Jesus, and the proof and the pudding is that they obeyed Jesus. You know, isn't this exactly what Jesus taught his own disciples? In John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, after them mentioning their new faith, he moves on to speak about their new love. Their new love. He he describes it, did you notice? A labor of love. You know, keeping in step with their good works was their sacrificial and selfless care for one another. In fact, later on in this letter, their love was so contagious that Paul didn't have to reteach them anything. He just encouraged them to keep loving as you are doing. Look over in chapter 4 for a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. you look at verses 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Have you ever come into contact with a young man or young woman who's been freshly engaged? The ring is shining quite brightly, hitting you in the face. They're both giddy. You can tell in just a few minutes that they are unquestionably interested in one another. They deeply care for one another. The guy still opens the door for her. Hint, hint, don't stop, gentlemen. Whether it's the joy on their face or the way they talk to one another or talk to others about one another, it is so obvious and evident that they are deeply interested in one another. 
Well, friends, the Thessalonians had an obvious love for one another too. But this was a love that far surpassed, far transcended some kind of romantic flame or infatuation that may last for a few months. This was something that even far surpassed an engagement ring. In fact, did you notice what verse 9 and 10 says? It was a love that only God himself can teach you how to love another person. You see, this new love that the Thessalonians had for one another uh, was really serving as like a living and breathing billboard to show off God's love through them to their communities. I mean, the way they spoke to one another, the way they shared with one another, the way they lived amongst themselves. This was the daily advertisement that Jesus' love had changed their hearts. Isn't this what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Members of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, if we don't love other Christians simply on the basis that they belong to Jesus, we need to examine our hearts. If you call yourself a Christian and you don't love other genuine, born-again, spirit-filled Christians simply on the basis that they have been purchased with the blood of Christ, you and I need to examine our faith this morning. Friends, if you're constantly avoiding Christians and constantly distancing yourself from gathering with the saints each Lord's Day when you really could be with them, you're probably drifting in your faith too. Without even realizing that you could be in danger of making shipwreck of your faith. You see, if you lack genuine love for those who belong to Christ, if your life shows a disdain and an unrepented anger towards genuine Christians, my friend, you could be deceived this morning. That's what 1 John chapter 4 teaches. Read that passage this afternoon for yourself. You see, to love Christ, whom you and I cannot see, is put to the test by loving his bride, the church, whom you can see. Let me say that again. To love Christ, whom we cannot see, is put to the test by loving his bride, the church, that we can see. Friends, you and I should spend less time thinking of ways church members don't serve you and spend more times thinking of ways that you can serve other members of this church. Friends, repentance of entitlement is membership 101 at CCBC. Starts with me and it flows throughout the church. Jesus doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. It is a tremendous honor and privilege to serve King Jesus however he wants for however long he wants. And that is all. If we deserve his wrath, as we just sang about, and he invites us to his table to take part 
one day in the marriage supper of the Lamb, that is enough. If we've been forgiven of our sins, that is enough. As one preacher once told me in the back of a country church, he said, Brother Blake, I've never lacked an opportunity to serve Jesus. He knows where you live. He knows what needs his church has. You just wait and see. He'll make it awake for you. Yes, sir, Pastor Charlie. I don't have to worry about that. He's never lacked an opportunity for us to serve others. But friends, I want you to see something. Did you notice he said it was a labor of love? That word is pregnant with difficulty. Christ-like love is hard. Fluffing stuff that the world tells us is love is not real love. Husbands, love your wives as how? Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He bore the wrath of God for his enemy in order to make his enemy his friend. That's the definition of love. Love is messy. Love is hard. And love perseveres through the hardest of times because we love one another because he first loved us. Friends, love is never based off feelings. Love is based off of God's grace. If love was based off feelings, we would love no one. Because when our feelings get trampled on, we would put up our arms. Friends, how has God shown you his kindness to you, his patience to you, his mercy to you, his pursuit of you, his daily mercies to you? Think of all the times you failed him and he still loves you. Now, Take that same response of awe and grace and show that to the people sitting in this building. Friends, that, that right there is a labor of love. Let me ask you a question. Just this past week, has your love for other Christians been obvious and evident? And people can testify to it. Can people look at your life and my life and say, wow, look at what depths, look at what lengths, look at what pain, look at what stress, look at what tears that brother or that sister is going to show love. And friends, if it isn't, go back to the cross. Go back to Calvary. Go back when God showed his love for you and ask him to give you even just a small measure of that Christ-like love for others. I pray that would be true for all of us. As it appears, it was true for the Thessalonians. You see, God had given them a new faith and a new love. And friends, God gave them a new hope. A hope that far surpassed good circumstances. A hope that far surpassed a beautiful spouse or a handsome spouse or good health or a good paying job. He gave them a hope that would actually last beyond this life. Did you notice there a new hope? He describes it as their steadfastness of hope. It could also even be translated as the endurance or perseverance of hope. 
You see, prior to believing the gospel, these Jews that were in the synagogue, they were blind. They read Psalm 65, 5, that God was the hope of the ends of the earth, but they didn't understand how God would show that hope through Jesus. And they remained blind to their sin. The Gentiles, we're told in Ephesians 2, were separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. That's why if you don't hold a Christian worldview, it is the most hopeless way to live this life. It's so empty. You can become philosophically proud all you want, taking a few semesters of philosophy in college, but just give, give life five or ten years, you're going to see how hopeless and meaningless life is apart from God. But you see, these new followers of Jesus, they possessed a new hope. They had a confident expectation in something that this world couldn't give them. They had a confident hope that gave them courage to stare their greatest enemy in their face, which was death itself, our last enemy. I want you to notice, though, this steadfast and enduring hope was it wasn't found in just some kind of made-up philosophical idea. It wasn't in good vibes. It wasn't in positive thinking. But it was really in a person, a real person. Notice verse 3, where, his hope, where their hope was found. He says, a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're not a Christian, here at CCBC, we want to be as just raw and honest as we can be. We're a Christian church, which means if you're not a Christian today, the number one thing we want you to get from today is that you're a sinner against a holy God. You have rebelled against him. You are hopeless without him. And you deserve his righteous wrath if you were to stand before him in your sin. That is really, really bad news. And yet the good news is that God has demonstrated a way for us to be reconciled to God. A way to be forgiven. A way to have our dirty hearts made clean. Our dirty record washed white, washed white as snow. And that's by putting our faith in the life, death, resurrection, of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ stood in our place, bearing the penalty of our sins against God's wrath that we deserve. And God raised him from the dead, demonstrating that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he perfectly obeyed God in every way. Jesus never needed a new faith. He never needed a new love. He never needed a new hope. He eternally had it. He had it on earth, and he has it forever now. Friends, put your faith in Christ. Turn from your sins. Turn from your hopelessness and put your faith in the God of all hope through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, did you notice here what Paul's doing in verse 3? He's just simply recognizing all the ways that God had brought these changes in their life. You see, brothers and sisters, some of us, our prayer life sounds more like a end-of-the-year Christmas wish list, you know? God, give me, God, give me, God, give me, God, give me. Take this away, take this away, take this away, take this away. And there is certainly a place and a time, there's an appropriateness to make our requests known to him. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Those are all true. But friends, one of the ways that we can cultivate a God-centeredness to our prayer life 
is simply by thanking God for what you see him doing in other people's lives. I mean, friends, have you ever walked into an art museum before? If you haven't, I would encourage you to go to a really nice one, go to a major city, check out the best one they got. You see a painting, you see a sculpture, and it catches your eye. And what do most people do? Well, they stare, they stand, they want others to see it. They try to slip in a little picture without the policeman looking, put it back in their pocket. When you see something that catches your eye, it takes your breath away, you want others in on it. You want others to take pleasure in the beauty of something you've taken notice of. And friends, sooner or later, if you gather a crowd around that painting or that sculpture, you're going to go, well, who did this? Who painted this? Who built this? Wow! Friends, do you know that our prayer lives should look like that? When we're looking at that sister who's been struggling with a particular sin, gain some gradual victory over it. When we see that brother who was intimidated to read his Bible begin to be saturated in the scriptures. When you see that struggling marriage grow in grace towards each other. Did you know that we actually give God glory when we take time to affirm and acknowledge what he's doing in other people's lives? I like how Sam Crabtree puts it in his book, Practicing Affirmation. If you feel like you're not a good encourager or you'd like to grow in your ability to encourage people, Practicing Affirmation by Sam Crabtree. Here's what he says. The chief end of God is not to glorify man as humanistic thought would have it. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Meanwhile, the praising of people does not necessarily preclude the praising of God if the people are commended ultimately for his glory. God is glorified in us when we affirm the work he has done and is doing in others. Friends, when is the last time you encouraged another Christian like that? Husbands, when is the last time You took time to encourage what you see God doing in your wife's life. Wives, when's the last time you took time to encourage your husband in the ways that God's working in their life? Friend, when's the last time you looked to a fellow church member and just simply told them through a text, an email, a call, or a hallway conversation, telling them the fruits of the Spirit that you've been seeing abound in their life. Friends, this is what should be normal in every Christian church because we're most amazed, not with us, we're most amazed at what God is doing in and through us. I'm pretty convinced that even conflicts and relationships are at least cut in half when they're built with an atmosphere of encouragement, of affirmation, Friends, it's really hard to envy. It's really hard to be jealous when you're simply thankful for what God's already given you. When you're rejoicing in others' joys and being thankful for simply God saving us. Uh, One word I give at weddings, so if you come to any weddings I do, you'll probably hear this, and you're like, you know, I know what Blake's about to say, so there you go. I always tell a husband and wife, and I would tell to any brother and sister in Christ, Be quick to encourage one another. Be slow to critique one another. 
Be quick to encourage one another. Be slow to critique one another. Friends, even the book of Corinthians, Paul spends the longest letter ever correcting them. And you know what he does in chapter 1? He encourages them. He affirms God's grace in their life. Intentional, thoughtful encouragement is like spiritual oxygen for our souls. Friends, who today could you give that spiritual oxygen for their soul? Who could you think about encouraging this week to give them that word in season to lift their anxious and downcast soul? Well, friends, Paul's not doing this to be flattering with them. He's he's actually doing it to reassure them that God has saved them, that God loves them. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now I'm in the second part of my outline, the source of Christian conversion. Uh, how many of you, I need raise a hand just to see if this illustration is going to fall flat or not. How many of you remember the magic eight ball? You, you could buy at the store, maybe it's still there, 80s and 90s kids, you totally know, you totally track in with me. It's that plastic toy with the number eight, and it's got this blue dye and a cube, and, and really, it's, it's, it's kind of one of the most superstitious pagan toys that our toy stories have. But track with me. Come back to Christian thinking for a minute. Most of the time, we would buy these things. I knew for me in my elementary and early middle school days, you know, am I going to pass the algebra test? Is Sarah going to go to the dance with me? You know, they had possible answers. Yes, definitely. Outlook, good. You just put it down and you went on. Then you had those negative answers, very doubtful. Don't count on it. And then you think I could take just a yes or a no. Whoever made this magic eight ball had this middle ground outcome. You remember this one? One of those things that kind of left you in knots. Reply hazy. Try again. Cannot predict now. Concentrate and ask again. Concentrate? You're shaking a ball. (laughs) You know, I think many of us as Christians, we tend to think of God's love that way. On Sunday, we hear God loves me. On Monday, does he still love me? On Tuesday, does he still love me? On Wednesday, does he even care? Friends, that phrase in your Bible, loved by God, is pregnant with amazing encouragement. It's in the perfect passive voice. In other words, Paul is in essence saying this to the Thessalonians and to us. In Christ, beloved, God has already loved you to the uttermost. It has reached complete fulfillment. His love for you is not going to change. Your life can be rattled and turned upside down, and he's never going to give you a hazy response. I loved you when you were my enemy, and I love you now that you're my son or my daughter. His love doesn't change, and his love is never half empty. It is always over. Flowing. Friends, that's why salvation is all of grace. 
Every bit of it. The day you saw the light, the day you were on the top of your game, so to speak, and passing out gospel tracts and turning from your sins, and on your worst day, he's loved you with the same love. Friends, that's a love that only God can provide. And it's possible through Jesus. You have been in Christ perfectly loved. Stop, dear brother and sister, shaking the magic eight ball. Chunk it in the dumpster of nonsense. This is the answer. If you're looking to Jesus, he loves you. If you're looking to Jesus, he loves you. And sometimes when your gaze gets off of Jesus, he comes for you because he loves you. That's why Paul encouraged them. God began this good work in you. He's going to complete this work in you because he has perfectly loved you. That's why he chose you. He chose you because he loved you, period, so that he gets all the glory. Friends, when we read of God's grace and we sing of God's grace, we should be reassured and humbled by his grace. Oh, my friends, when we come to the foot of the cross, we come to the end of ourselves. When we come to the foot of the cross, we come to the end of ourself. Friends, Ephesians tells us God set his sovereign, electing love on you in Christ before the world began. That means his love for you transcends even time. Wow. Marvel at such amazing grace. But friends, one of the things that Paul wanted to remind them is that his love brings a change in our hearts that never leaves us the same. Did you notice verse 5? He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know, sometimes people think becoming a Christian is like turning over a new leaf. A New Year's resolution. Kind of like a quick reset button on a soundboard or something. But what Paul says is, no, 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 no. Conversion is a supernatural work. It's a radical transformation. It's so radical that only God can do it. Did you notice the words he used to describe how powerful this conversion is? He said, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. That, that word power is where we get our word dynamite, dunamis in Greek. It literally means we need more than a spiritual flu shot. We need a spiritual resurrection. And friends, this is what happens. When we put our faith in Christ, we are made alive with Christ and seated in the heavenly places. But this is not some impersonal force. As maybe a Jehovah's Witness might say, it's a real person who does the work in your heart. He says now the, the Holy Spirit. This is the forgotten third person of the triune God in most Baptist churches. But again, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. Being fully God, he has eternally existed with the Father and the Son, and he comes to live inside of every true Christian. You might say, well, what difference does it make? If the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside me, What's he going to do? Here's just a sample of what the Bible says. 
The Holy Spirit opens our hearts to receive God's word. He illuminates our minds to know God's truth and reject false teaching. He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He transforms us into the image of his son. He empowers us for service through spiritual gifts and building up the church. And really, if you read throughout the New Testament, the spirit of the living God bears witness to the saving power of Jesus through our lips and through our lives. You know, in the grand scheme of eternity, you could even say this, the Holy Spirit has come to make his home in us to prepare us for our home in heaven. The Holy Spirit has come to make his home in us to prepare us for our home in heaven. Friends, that song we sang earlier, Oh Great God, have you ever pondered those words? I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Oh, friends, it's through the gospel where we see and savor what it means to be forgiven. Friends, it's through the gospel where God actually gives us conviction, uh, some ground to stand on when the storms and waves of life roar our way. Notice there he says also with full conviction. It literally means confidence or persuasion. Uh, to, to those of you in here who experience doubts, and a lot of them, maybe doubting your salvation, uh, doubting the historicity of the Bible, uh, doubting the importance of the local church, doubting the second coming of Christ, doubting the claims of Jesus, or maybe just doubting your own decisions on a daily basis. All of us might have a propensity to doubt. And even in the Christian life, it is not abnormal for Christians at time to doubt. The book of Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that there are some secret things that only belong to the Lord. God just doesn't reveal them to us. So friends, if you're someone here today and you hear this with full conviction and you struggle with doubts, I just want to encourage you. God doesn't promise to answer all your questions in this life, but he does tell us sufficiently what he wants us to know in this life. I, even this past week, I had a young believer text me, Brother Blake, I'm really struggling in my prayer life. I don't even know where to begin, how to pray. Do I say the Lord's Prayer? What do I do? I said, brother, that's a great question. All Christians go through that. I would just encourage you to pray Scripture back to God. Open up the New Testament. Take Ephesians. There's three or four prayers just sitting right there for you. Pray Scripture back to God and then put the names of some believers and churches in your prayers. Or maybe you're intimidated by your Bible. You're not really sure what it all means, how it fits together, how you interpret different genres of Scripture. I would just encourage you to find someone who knows the Bible better than you. Get over your fear of man and pride. Exemplify some humility and ask for help. Friends, that's how we grow in these deeper convictions. None of us were born with all this wisdom and knowledge. We have to be taught. We have to be instructed. We have to ask 
for help. And, and friends, the longer you trust in God's word and the longer you pray with God's people, I believe that full conviction becomes firmer and firmer in our lives. But Paul even draws attention to not just the message of salvation, but the messengers. Did you notice the example Paul left in verse 5? He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Friends, if you flip over to chapter 2, I'm not going to preach this section. You can read on your own. In chapter 2, Paul is going to contrast he and his team with the false teachers who were man-pleasers, flatterers, greedy for gain, and the faithful teachers, really what Paul and Timothy and, and Silas embodied. And as you'll read these descriptions, I want you to look at verse 8. One of the things that Paul reminds them of is not that just Paul was a good preacher or a faithful expositor, but he and Timothy and Silas dearly loved the people he preached to. Look at verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You see, back in chapter 1, when Paul says, you know what kind of men we were? We weren't hucksters. We weren't in it for the money. When the going got tough, we stood firm. We continued to preach. We even got extra jobs to demonstrate to you that the false teachers were there to fleece you, to hurt you, to take advantage of you. But beloved, we came to you and shared not only the good news, but we shared our own life with you. And you had become dear to us. Jansen, one word, brother, as a young preacher, there is one thing to preach good sermons. There's another thing to love the people you preach those good sermons to. I pray for you. Please pray for me. Pray for the elders. Pray for any future preacher and pastor of this church that these men would not only faithfully teach God's word, but love the people they teach God's word to. Friends, that's why Paul said, look what kind of men we were. We were in it for your spiritual good, not our own personal gain. And friends, the same can be true for any of us, regardless if you're a preacher. Just simply sharing your life with one another can have a profound impact. Friends, open up your home. Open up your schedule. Open up your heart. Open up your Bible. God uses ordinary means to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. Friends, just share your life with somebody. Share with them your testimony. Share with them your struggles. Help another person follow Jesus. Friends, it's going to get hard, right? Labor of love. Real Christ-like love is messy and hard, and it's worth it because Jesus first loved us, right? Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love endures all things, and love hopes all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. CCBC? What happens when a church has a God-centered view of their ministry, of their lives? 
What happens when Christians see their love for one another simply based on Christ's love for them? What happens when the members of the church open up their lives to one another, pursue one another, persevere with a labor of love together? What do you think happens? Friends, we don't see a perfect church. We don't see a church without its problems or sins, but we do see a faithful church that God mightily uses. And that leads us to point number three, the testimony of a faithful Christian church. Look at verses 6 to 10 with me. And he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only is the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Uh, Here you see in verses 6 to 10 really a domino effect, right? God works powerfully through his messengers. He rescues, regenerates, and changes sinners' lives, and they form a church. These leaders, Paul and his team, are teaching and encouraging while they're getting blasted in persecution And eventually he tells them, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know. I just got to head down. It's getting hot. I'm going to Corinth, but I'm going to write you. And he writes them, and he sends Timothy to check on them. And they got a church, and God's using them. And he wants to tell them, remember? Remember the example of Christ you saw in me? Remember what God had done in you? Keep imitating Christ. Keep imitating godly examples. And keep preaching the gospel. Listen, God used this domino effect. Members sharing their lives with one another through labors of love. Their hope in Jesus. The godly example in Paul and his team. And did you know in just a few months, maybe even under a year, God had mightily used this one church, not just locally, but over hundreds of miles away. Look at verse 8. He says, their faith in God, listen to this, has gone forth where? Speak up louder. Michael, say it loud. Everywhere. Their faith in God has gone everywhere so that we need not say anything. You see, this young church, a discipling and evangelistic church, was a powerhouse in the hands of God. Friends, you know how and why? It's because God's love for them had changed their love for one another and their love for the community around them. Oh, friends, I wonder what you think characterizes a faithful church. I wonder what you think characterizes a healthy church church. Well, I want you to notice verse 9 briefly. They were a church that received the word of God with joy. Verse 6, they received the word in much affliction. 
Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You know, every church has a stereotype, right? The nice church, the big church, the small church, the legalistic church, the love church, the true church, all those different labels and stereotypes and descriptions. It seems that the Thessalonian church, they were known as the repenting church. They weren't just known as Christians, they were known as repenters. That's what the community's known them as. They had turned from their idols to serve the one true and living God. Friends, you know you're sitting in a faithful church when repentance of your sin is the norm in the church, not the exception. You know you're sitting in a faithful church where God is working when repentance is not the exception to the rule, but it's the norm in the lives of its members. Oh, friends, their faith, it was real, but their faith was not private. They made their faith known to others. They were unashamed of the gospel. But friends, just like us, they face times where they just wish the trials would go away. They wish that life would just go ahead and be done. Not have to worry about starting a new friendship or starting a new job or getting over another grief, period. That's why Jesus reminded, I'm sorry, Paul reminded them that their greatest hope is still yet to come. Look at verse 10. They were a church that waited expectantly for Christ's return. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, friends, like the Thessalonians, Christians and all true Christian churches are called to persevere in faith as we wait on Christ's return. Friends, we are not the church victorious yet. We now live right now in the church militant. There is still a battle. The war has been won at the cross, but the battle's not over until we go to glory or Christ comes for us. As my former senior pastor, Mark Dever, used to say, the basic posture of the Christian life is waiting. The basic posture of the Christian life is waiting. We pray and we plan as we wait on Christ's return. We disciple and we evangelize as we wait on Christ's return. We work and we sleep as we wait on Christ's return. We persevere under trials as we wait on Christ's return. We rejoice and we weep as those who have hope because Jesus has promised He will return. And beloved, this waiting, it's not a vain calling. One day that waiting will go from faith to sight. You see, Jesus died for his church. And Jesus promised, I'm coming back for my church. Jesus was raised from the dead for his church. And he will deliver his church from the wrath to come. You see, in Christ, we have been saved from the worst 
thing that could ever happen to us. God's wrath. And in Christ, we've been saved for the best thing that could ever happen to us. Eternal life with him. Friends, in Christ, God gives us a new faith, a new love, and a new hope. Do others see God's work of grace like this in your life? Let's pray. Father, we praise you that through your Lord, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we are perfectly and permanently forever loved. In your love, grants us a new faith, a new love, and a new hope. Lord, we do pray that each of us individually would examine our own faith, examine our own lives in light of Scripture. Lord, I pray that we would encourage one another about the work we do see in one another's lives, that we would take time to appreciate and affirm what we see your hand doing in our lives. Lord, we also pray that like the Thessalonians, that our faith and our love and our hope would be so contagious. It would be so real. It would be so tangible that the testimony of Chaffney Crossing Baptist Church would be that your word has resounded forth from us. That we would be known not merely as Christians, but as repenters. And Father, I pray that wherever we're at in life, whether we're enjoying life, or we are weary and trucking through it. Lord, remind us that we are still waiting for our hope to be made sight. Teach us, Lord, how to keep our eyes on Christ and his return. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.